This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Sarah Holtz. And on this episode of Peace Talks Radio, we'll explore peacemaking strategies for law enforcement officers who are trying to respond to persistent calls from citizens to address repeated high-profile examples of excessive force. In the second half of the show, we'll pivot to a country that abolished its military entirely in the 1950s, Costa Rica. We'll learn about a community of Quaker war resistors from the United States who expatriated to a remote cloud forest in Costa Rica to evade America's military-industrial complex. So in these two highly distinct contexts, our correspondent Sarah Holtz will show us that conflict resolution actually bears a striking resemblance in both areas. We're going to begin with Scott Chereau, who specializes in crisis intervention training for police cadets and other law enforcement agents. Scott leverages his background as a trained actor to role-play high-pressure crisis scenarios. Sarah Holtz caught up with Scott online, and she began by asking him about the crisis intervention training that he had just finished. It went very, very well. I was very, very pleased. It was a 40-hour class, advanced crisis intervention training. So these were officers that had been on the street for a while. Most of them had been on for quite a while. And it was a very difficult scenario as a jumper off a bridge over I-40. We do three variations of each one. And each one was, had something to do with psychosis, mild psychosis, a little more severe, and then really severe psychosis. And what does crisis intervention look like in that kind of scenario? It really looks like listening, asking the right questions, trying to build some kind of rapport with the person standing on the bridge, making empathic statements, not trying to go to the solution right away, and definitely not ever getting in physical proximity to the person because we we shared stories today among the officers about people that have died. They stopped allowing people to go near anybody on the Golden Gate because many, many law enforcement people have died. Those are the kinds of things that can happen. It can be very, very dangerous. What were some of the reactions that you received from um, the police officers you were training today? They responded actually very well. It was slightly embarrassing. Many of them were very complimentary. That's why the work is powerful. If I'm really in the emotion and you're standing in front of me, you cannot help but be affected by it if you're a human being. Now, many people try not to be and there are many people that are removed from the academy because they, are, they don't have the empathic bone in their body. And so that they're not really, they're just all RoboCop, which can be dangerous too. Have you had many experiences where you've um, perceived an officer to go into that RoboCop mode and you've had to kind of sway them out of it and back to humanity? Yes, many times. In fact, that's one of the things that appears mostly with trainees, with cadets. I've trained all over the state, all over the, the region, and with, with law, law enforcement and Colorado and Arizona. And the cadets are different from people that are already through and have been on the street, right? But often the cadets are all about the solution. We're here to solutionize. We need to get this done. And they forget to be curious and ask, and ask questions. Like, you just said the VA sucks. What does that mean? What does that mean? Or these drugs don't work. 
they let it go by and they miss an opportunity to build rapport and to find out what's really going on. You have to be curious. Curiosity did not kill the cat. And many times they're not curious at all. They just want to storm in and do the thing. And I did one recently. Oh, this was, this was tricky. I did one a couple of months ago and very hot night. It was a nighttime, almost near graduation for these, these cadets. And it was a welfare check, a simple welfare check in an apartment. And we have one of the training facilities. We have an apartment. We have, you know, a couch and TV and a, and a front door and a screen door. And it's open. And the officer hit the door, identified himself as law enforcement, and then opened the door. The door was actually ajar, but he came in. And I was sitting there with a knife in front of me on a table. And I said, what are you doing? You don't come in here. I don't want, sir, sir, I'm here for a what? And, and he kept it up and he got very, very, you know, robocop. And I grabbed the knife and he pulled his gun out. And I was like, what? You're going to shoot me now? So I don't have to kill myself. Is that what's, is that what's going? Is that? And it escalated very badly. And, and in the, in the debriefing, I realized what happened was, I freaked him out and he didn't want me to see that he was freaked out by my move. So he's like, okay, I'm in charge. And ultimately it escalated so badly that I slipped my wrist. I just said, oh, I'm just, and that was it. And like, end scenario, like, do you realize what just happened? <laughs> like you escalated this to, to the death of this person. You were doing a welfare check. Did he seem to have much critical self-awareness in the debrief after the fact? He did. Oh, he sh- he certainly did. Oh, he was like, oh man, I'm like, he was totally flum- you know, flummoxed by it. So things like that are very, very rare. Thank goodness. They're very rare. But when they happen, it's kind of an eye opener. I'm here with Scott Chereau, actor and crisis intervention coach. And I'm wondering, what is it like for you to access that emotional space? For me, I I have to say it's exhausting, but I'm a trained actor and for many, many years and it's what I do and I do well. So I relish being able to do it, but sometimes I will come home from work and I'm the one that cooks meals and I'll say to my wife, we're going out to dinner. There's no way I can, I'm just really fried. Nine hours of this is is really difficult because you really are in the in the heat of it you're, it's, you're in the reality of it the way it works is the scenario is set up with it really just bare bones really bare bones this is what's going on the call is given to them from dispatch this is what the call is there's very little information in the call no names given usually just this person needs a welfare there's a neighbor call because a guy's screaming and throwing things against it, whatever. Or there's a guy on the bridge and everybody's concerned. So they don't really know exactly what's going on. And then they, when they arrive, they have to explore that. The way it works is that we are teaching them communication skills. We are teaching them active listening skills, how to use those because those work for de-escalating, right? They really do work. And the way it works is when they do it correctly and they use those skills, we reward them by cooperating. We tone it down. We 
relate to them. If they don't, we sting them. And that means we escalate it. So you're, you're showing them that they're escalating the situation or mishandling the situation has real life consequences and you're actually enacting that. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's fascinating to see when they, they know that that's what they just did. They will, the, the self-correction is almost immediate. Some of the times it, it's, it's harder for some people to admit they made a mistake. And you wonder if you did make a mistake or you said something that offended somebody, wouldn't you just say, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean that to sound like, or I'm really sorry I offended you with that remark, or I'm sorry. Saying I understand is one of the things that does not work at all. You don't understand, but I got a divorce. Yeah, but your wife wasn't murdered by your son. You know, like you don't know what's going on here. Don't pretend you understand. You don't understand. You're not me. You haven't even explored what happened. That's a big one. I, I you know, oh, I understand. They, they think that's being empathic. It's really not. But what, what often will happen is I'll give a real obvious hook and they won't explore it. And I will continue to give hooks until, he, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes it goes right out the window and they, they haven't even heard it. So that, that's, that's one that is, is really an odd thing for me to see. The other thing is that many times people will realize that the reason they'll say, they've said to me, we role play with each other all the time and it doesn't mean anything, but we role play with you guys. Oh, wow. It's, this is real. It totally changes. And I think that's key. And I think it's very important. You can't get this by reading a website or going somewhere and, and doing a, a course with slides or something. There are slides. We do that too. But then we do the hands-on, which is really important. I'm wondering what role, if any, implicit bias training plays in the kind of trainings that you do. Does that come up at all, implicit bias with regards to race and class and gender? It does frequently. And in fact, it is a very difficult thing to change. It's very difficult to change. I'm not going to candy coat this. Uh, I was doing a, a training on a roof. There were two role players, one on one side of the building and the other on the other. Nine hour day, very long day, with a knife, a jumper off the, you know, the roof and so on. And they have red guns or, or blank gun, guns that shoot blanks and, you know, and a blank taser. It's not real, but, you know, they can use the taser or the, or the weapon. And we had to change the way the scenario worked because at the beginning, if I held the knife like I would hold a knife to use it, they would feel threatened, even though they were 25 feet away. So we held the knife then like a dead fish, sort of like, you know, and I'm crying. I'm going through this crisis. And they opened the door to the roof and they come, some of them would just barge out with their guns drawn, you know, and then I would jump off. But the thing that was interesting at the end of the day, we do a debrief and the other actor on the other roof came in and I came into the debrief room and he happened to be African-American and he smiled and he said, um, how many times did you get shot today? And I said, twice. How many times did you get shot today? He said, eight. Oh, dear. We're here with Scott Chereau, actor and crisis intervention coach. 
you know, when, when you and I first spoke, I think you mentioned something about, you know, you were dealing with a cadet, he was flagging or failing, and it was because there was something going on in his life. He had some of his own emotional baggage that was coming out in the crisis scenario that you presented. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that happens. This can happen. It's not frequently, but it can happen. And what happens often is that something in the scenario is so real and pushes a real hot button issue or a PTSD occurrence because they've experienced that in their own lives. And self-disclosure is a very tricky thing. We warn people, you can self-disclose, but you have to do it judiciously. You can't let that self-disclosure take you off into your own emotional thing. So the, the most dramatic version of that was I was work. there's a role play I do for a demented person who is drunk and trying to bang on the door of his house that he built at two in the morning. And the people living in the house call the police. This guy is banging on the door and screaming for Betty, right? That's the call. That's all they know. And when the cops come up, they, they, immediately say, sir, sir. And I'm like, Turn, what do you want? I didn't call the police. <laughs> sir, what are you doing? I'm trying to get Betty to open the damn door. This is my house. Sir, this is not your house. <laughs> Probably not a good thing to say, <laughs> but this is my house. I built this. On it goes, and I'm drunk on top of it. The guy had to do a timeout at one point because he got very emotional and there are professionals there to help people. And we are also coached beforehand about something that might get in the way. And we will specifically not do scenarios with certain people that may be triggered by a rape or so, you know, something like that. So that's definitely part of it too. But what happened with this gentleman was he stopped it for a timeout and he said, okay, look, this is really, I can't, this is so hard. It's, look, my dad has Alzheimer's. And I, you know, I, I can have empathy. I, I can understand, you know, like that. But this guy is so drunk. He's being such an idiot. I just, I, I'm losing it. And the feedback that was given was so beautiful. He just said, can you imagine that your dad left the healthcare facility, snuck out, went to the old bar he used to hang in and people bought him drinks and got him drunk. And then he walked over to his old house and tried to get in. The guy like... Oh, no. he started crying. He was like that. Oh, my. Oh, wow. Wow. I can't. Psh. All I have to do is be a human being. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's all. Think about your dad being this person. We all pejoratize. We all look at somebody the way they dress, the way they look. And you know what? This guy could be your treat this guy like he's your dad, your daughter, your son, whatever this is, you know, whatever's going on. It, it will help you. It seems like a difficult line because what you're trying to access in a lot of these cadets is empathy and compassion and being able to connect the scenario back to their own lived experiences. But at the same time, being a cadet or being an officer, you know, you do have to compartmentalize and you do have to, when you're on the force, you have to, you're doing your job. So what's that line between like, you know, accessing your own emotions and backstory and, you know, putting on the hat and, and doing the job, where, where do you draw the line? I would say that the focus always needs to be on the other because that's going to change the whole way that it, you proceed, 
right? If you're really there to help someone, to be honest, honesty is not as easy as it looks. If you're having trouble with something, if, if you're an officer and you're having trouble with something, you can excuse yourself and have your partner take up, say, excuse me a sec, I, I'm going to have my partner take over right now. Or if you've made a mistake, admit it right away. I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to say that. I can see that that set you off and it would make me angry too. I'm really sorry. Or something. In other words, what is really going on here? And if you know, if you definitely know before you even go out there that this is a really hot button issue for you, you might not want to take that call. But that, there's self-awareness that everybody has about those kinds of things, some more than others, right? Hot button issues don't go away. That's the sad thing. We just learn how to deal with them, right? We really do. We, ha we have to learn how to deal with them. Yeah. And by hot button, you're, you're referencing trauma, essentially. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm referencing anything that sets you off. So if somebody says something or acts the way your dad did or the way the police did or whatever, whatever in your past, you, you react in a very quick way without, sometimes without thinking and respond in a way that is not really constructive. In fact, it's usually destructive and it usually leads to not a good outcome. And it, it took me many years to really learn what to do. The first thing we, we train people to do is to breathe. First of all, breathe. And then do not respond with the first thing that comes to your mind. And if you know what the hot button is, learn how to respond by learning things to say. It seems to me that there's some issue too with perfectionism with like, you know, you can't make a mistake, even if it's the smallest mistake, if you can't make a mistake versus like, you know, obviously there are small mistakes, like I shouldn't have said that. And then there are big mistakes, like I shouldn't have pulled my gun out and shot someone. It's huge. And admitting you don't know something is really hard. The thing that really gets my goat working with mostly with cadets is when they say, they try to go to the solution right away and they'll say things like, we have resources. And even the way they say it falls flat. Like we have, we have resources. What resources? Well, we have lots of people that can help you. Okay. And their numbers are, you know, like they don't know what the resources are, but we have them. And the way to deal with that simply is to say, I'm new at all this. I don't know what the resources are, but I am going to call my captain right now and get you a list or a website that you can go to with resources to help you with this problem. Honestly, you don't know, but you're going you're gonna to do your damnedest to help find out where you can go with this problem. Scott Shiro, you've, you've been doing these trainings for a while. Have you seen the culture of police sensitivity trainings change, especially over the past five years or so as rhetoric around policing has changed? I have, indeed. It's changed in several ways. One of the ways that it changed is that there is much more buy-in these days from the trainees because they realize it works. There are fewer lawsuits. There are fewer shootings. There are fewer complaints. There are fewer things on the news that said this guy <laughs> said this or did that or whatever. And they realize, oh, at the beginning, a lot of people think, oh, this is all hippy-dippy, warm and fuzzy stuff. We don't do that. 
as, and now I sound like my grandfather and I'm 14 years older than he was when he died, but it really does seem interesting to me that the younger people today that I'm training are in their handheld devices and not, they're not used to really face to face. They're not really. And I, I think it's going to become much worse now that we're not, not face to face. Many times people are, they're just not used to talking to people. And also they're not expanded in a way that they might've been by interacting in the past. I don't know, that's changed a bit, but I'm very happy to see that the value has come to fore. People realize this is very valuable work, very necessary work. You can't really do any of these jobs without it. Yeah, it seems like you have to do this kind of interesting dance between, because, you know, if you get to, you know, feelings warm and fuzzy with it, then you get dismissed, but you can't be too militaristic either. So you kind of have to do this dance in between and find a middle ground there. Right. And, and key to that is really what my acting teacher at the Neighborhood Playhouse, I did three years of the professional program in the Neighborhood Playhouse in New York, and his whole definition of acting is living moment, living truthfully, moment to unanticipated moment in imaginary circumstances. And that's what makes this work powerful. You're living moment to moment truthfully. And what you say has to do with what they say and how they say. So it really is a dance. And if somebody is not on the same page, it's going to change. The whole thing is going to change. So Sandy Meisner, the head of the, the person that started all that, was brilliant in teaching that and getting people to understand that acting is not acting, it's reacting to what you're getting. So it takes two to tango. And that's a real important part of all of this. And the thing that, we, that I mentioned earlier is so important, the human being part. And it sounds like, oh, that's so easy. It's not because people want to solutionize. They want to get to the core. They want to solve the problem. What potential do you think these trainings have for, I guess you could call them lay people, people who aren't in law enforcement or in medicine? What value can we derive from your teachings? I'm so glad you asked that question because I have segued again this training and what I do into training teachers, to training sales people, front desk people at hospitals, all kinds of people that need help with customer service, with dealing with the public, and even dealing in relationships with each other. So even in a, a relationship, in a family, in any situation that you're dealing with communicating, particularly with difficult subjects, using these techniques is very, very helpful. I statements, empathic statements, pauses. Wow, a pause is a very powerful thing when you're communicating. Making sure you reflect what you're hearing so the person knows what you're hearing. I think I heard you say, what I heard you say was, or emotional labeling, wow, I'm sorry, that really made you angry. And then if you're wrong, they'll say, no, it didn't make me angry. It made me completely frustrated. Why are we not getting this? You know, that kind of thing, right? So it is so helpful in everyday life in dealing with customer service on the phone. <laughs> oh dear. In dealing with anybody in 
in life, a store, whatever, it is very, very helpful because if you do it incorrectly, if you do it wrong, it's going to escalate. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that you've kind of explored these, you know, you pick out the most dramatic scenario, the most extreme, whether it's suicide or, you know, addiction or, you know, these these extremes of the human experience. And I think it's fascinating that you can take those extreme places and apply it to the most mundane thing, whether it's customer service or dealing with a loved one. Absolutely. It's, it, it's real. It's emotion. It's real. And there it is. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with it effectively? That was Scott Chirot, a crisis intervention coach based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You can hear more from Scott in the complete interview that Sarah Holtz did with him, all on our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Look for our October 2020 episode. We'll have more from today's program after a short break. Peace Talks Radio producer, Paul Ingalls. On to part two of our program today now. In June of 2020, director Robin Truesdale and producer Bill Adler released a documentary called Sweet Home Monteverdi, which chronicles the migration of a Quaker community from Alabama to a remote cloud forest in Costa Rica, just after the country had abolished its army. Here's the official trailer to Sweet Home Monteverdi. Our belief in pacifism is based on the fact that there, there's a spark of the divine in every person. And under no circumstances should we take the life of another person. When the United States passed their Universal Military Training Act of 1948, it was important to make a statement against militarism. The Fairhope Four, I call them. <laughs> These four young guys refused to register. We were sentenced to a year and a day in uh, prison. They didn't want to draft into the army and they got sent to jail for a while. Because um, they didn't like, want war. And then the judge said to them that if you don't want to be part of this, then you can leave the country. What they had to do is a really hard choice, leaving your country to like a place you've never been. Our prison sentences terminated on October 27th, 1950. So November 4th, we got into our vehicles and started for Costa Rica. <laughs> I 
I'm gonna lay down my heaven low Down by the riverside Down by the riverside Down by the river I'm gonna lay down my heaven low Way down Down by the riverside Study war no more I ain't gonna study a war no more Ain't gonna study a war no more Maybe it was presumptuous of us, but we just had this feeling inside of us, this is what we must do. This group of Quakers leaving the United States for conscientious reasons. I don't think I'd ever heard of Costa Rica. I didn't really know where Costa Rica was or ever hear of it before. I guess we just foolhardy or otherwise, there we were, just burning our bridges. <laughs> it all happened so fast. Costa Rica, they don't have a standing army. It's not a militaristic society. So that rung a bell in our minds as well. <laughs> Let's go create a new, a new vision. Going out of the country to live somewhere and be pioneers. That sounds pretty exciting when you're young. Starting all over again, that sounds like it'd be interesting. <laughs> the trailer to the documentary, Sweet Home Monteverdi. And to begin our conversation about it, producer Bill Adler reflects on the peaceful conflict resolution that he observed during his time in Monteverdi. For me, Quakerism was new. Um, I had not lived um, among Quakers before. And so for the three years I was there, you know, I was really able to witness conflict resolution, peaceful conflict resolution, you know, up close. And it wasn't always pretty, I'll say that. But, you know, in Quaker meetings, they would, and they could last for hours upon hours, um, but they generally resolve things through essentially consensus decision-making and always, you know, with respect. And that's, I think, was the thing that was most striking to me, how respectful people were of one another, even when they strongly disagreed. And that's something I think I've, I've tried to carry with me. How did this film come about? I was living uh, in Monteverde, Costa Rica, with my family, we moved down there in the summer of 2012, primarily so that my son could attend the Monteverde Friends School, which is a, a bilingual school, a Quaker school. And so in the course of our time there, I realized that these elder Quakers really had a tremendous story to tell. And it hadn't been told properly. At least I didn't feel that it had been told properly. So that's why I set about to uh, produce this film on their lives. Robin Truesdale is the director of the film. I joined the project about three years ago. He had gathered all of the footage and interviews and really just needed someone to put it together and tell the story. And so that's when we began working as a team. Very cool. I'm wondering for those of our listeners who aren't very familiar with um, the Quaker ideology, if you could fill us in a little bit about um, pacifism and the ideology that went into 
this community's decision to leave the United States for Costa Rica. Yeah, that's really at the at the heart of the film. And th- they left in uh, the fall of 1950. And it was uh, during the Korean War. Uh, the U.S. had entered the Korean War in June of that year. And there were four fellows from Fairhope, Alabama, rural Alabama, and they had gone to prison as draft resistors rather rather than entering the draft. And when they got out of prison, they had been meeting with others in their community, in the Friends community in Fairhope, and they really felt like they could not be faithful. They could not carry out their faith and their belief in pacifism and still stay in the United States because every tax dollar they contributed was going to the war economy at that point, or most of them, let me put it that way. And so they began meeting in in discussion groups in Fairhope and looked for a place, uh, another country where they could really live out their ideals of pacifism and their beliefs. I'm here with director Robin Truesdale and producer Bill Adler of Sweet Home Monteverde. Were there folks in the Fairhope community of Quakers that didn't end up leaving, or was it everyone came to full consensus and everybody migrated? Yeah, that's a great question, Sarah. They, um, there was a lot of back and forth on whether or not they should go, and some people said, well, you should stay here and fight for peace in your homeland. And others, and it turned out to be the prevailing view, said it's not going to do any good. We need to leave and we need to make a moral statement by leaving. But there was uh, quite a bit of dissent about it. And in the end, the Fairhope meeting of friends almost fell apart because so many of their members left, some 40 uh, in all. And it's a small meeting. uh, And so it really kind of decimated the meeting. They eventually regrouped and they're still around and it's still quite a small meeting. And some of the folks who left for Costa Rica from Alabama uh, ended up coming back. Some came back after a few months. Some came back after a year or two. But uh, the vast majority of them stayed in Costa Rica. Very interesting. Yeah. And one thing that I didn't know, um, you know, they mentioned one of the Monteverde community members mentioned that uh, speaking truth to power, that idea that has become so resonant in our discourse today is is actually sort of a Quakerism. Is that right? Yes, I, I think so. I think that uh, Quakers have always espoused speaking truth to power. And what this small band of Quakers did is in many ways emblematic, I think, of, of you know, the larger friends community in the U.S. and around the world for that matter. You know, I, I think that it's important also just to recognize that they do have this, this history of activism. You know, it's not just silent worship. I mentioned that, of course, and people may know Quakers in that regard, but they're, you know, they were leading abolitionists during uh, slavery, of course, and they have a a long history of uh, progressive activism and peaceful activism. One of our subjects in the film, uh, Max Carter, who's a retired professor of Quaker studies uh, at Guilford College in North Carolina, talks about how pacifism is not being passive. It's not engaging basically only in, in passive resignation. And I think the point that he was making was, in fact, they practice a passionate activism. And that's something 
that we also saw and I think is pretty well documented in the film, especially among the young people uh, who are now getting uh, very active in Monteverde, particularly on the issue of climate change. And that's something directly, that's a direct legacy of the values and core beliefs of, of Quakers. Why was Costa Rica the best place for this community to land? Well, Costa Rica had recently abolished their army in 1948. I think that spoke to their sensibilities about being in a country with no military because you know their their main issue was the military tax. I think not only just the Korean War, the physical act of war, but also the fact that people in this country are are paying into the war machine with their income. And I think that Costa Rica appealed to them because of the culture. It's a it's a very peaceful community-based culture. Also they felt welcomed there. I think the Costa Ricans were happy to welcome them for them to buy their property and and to settle in there. Uh, it just turned into a perfect situation for them. And I would just add that for the most part, the people who left the U.S. were very young. They were Some were still in their teens, 18 and 19 years old, and they either already had kids in some cases or were preparing to start families. And I think they really felt like they did not want to raise their kids in the states where, where the atmosphere was so militaristic. Yeah, and then there was also the agricultural and conservation piece of it, too. Can you talk a little bit about how they started doing conservation work? Uh, sure. They, um, you know, it took them about six months to find land on which to, to settle uh, in Costa Rica. And uh, they finally found this remote and isolated cloud forest, so remote that there were no uh, real roads going there. They had been dairy farmers back home in Alabama and so that was their original thinking. They were going to be some kind of a, a you know, they were going to start a farming community, that much they knew. But the conservation part really came later. It didn't come initially. They didn't go there, you know, as ardent conservationists. Right. One of the original people to go there was Wolf Gwendon. And it's funny, I did not have the pleasure of meeting Wolf. He passed away before I had gone to Costa Rica on the filming. But I did talk to his wife, Lucky, and her quote in the film is that he spent the first 20 years cutting trees and then the next about 60 years planting trees. So he became a very ardent environmentalist and he um, was very instrumental in creating the Monteverde Reserve, sort of switching gears from creating pasture to actually restoring the forest and um, preserving it and making a space where the animals and plant life could thrive and not be threatened. That's right. And, you know, one of the things that interested me was just how they did that, how these people fit into their time and place. Because just imagine, I mean, leaving a developed country such as the United States going to another country where they did not speak the language. None of them spoke Spanish. They get there and they end up finding, as I said, this, this remote area where they had to take ox carts up initially just to get there. And then they basically built the road 
pulling out stumps all the way, and they would try to you know get jeeps up there. And then once they got there, they had to figure out what to do, how they were going to survive. And they started out you know living in tents. They had these, uh, ironically enough, I guess, army surplus tents that they lived in. And then they eventually set up a factory. They needed to make a living. They set up a cheese factory because, as I said, they were dairy farmers back home, and that's what they knew. Um, and they set up a cooperative cheese factory. And the Friends School were basically the first institutions they established there. And the Friends School is where my son ended up going, and it's still flourishing today, uh, 70 years later. We're here with Robin Truesdale and Bill Adler, the filmmakers behind Sweet Home Monteverde. Do you have any favorite quotes from the interviews that you did for the movie? There's a quote that I liked from Marvin Rockwell. He said that I felt that it was my duty to try to show as many people as possible how wrong war is. And I like that because he was thinking of many more, uh, you know, of the larger world outside of himself and his immediate community in Fairhope. And Marvin is somebody who had actually served in World War II as a medic. And so he experienced firsthand the horrors of war. And when he came back from World War II, you know, he was not about to go back to fight in Korea or to even, you know, serve as a medic in Korea. And so when he said that he felt that it was his duty to try to show as many people as possible how wrong war is, I think that he was speaking, you know, from a place that few others actually knew about because he had experienced it firsthand. I had written down a quote that's in the film. One of the interviews was Robbie Lieberman. She is a history professor in Georgia. And I love what she says. She says that social movements historically come from some hope of an alternative, some vision that can be shared with other people. And um, I know that's pretty philosophical, but I think it's true. She says we can find hope in really dark times because that's the way we build movements and make a difference. I was thinking about the idea of pilgrimage. I would say that what this group from Fairhope did was almost a pilgrimage. They left their home and they they went, you know, they traveled and went to a place and discovered new things and associated with new people. And I think that pilgrimage, whether it's religious or just based on a, a need to learn about what's out there and, and find our inner spirituality, is a really important thing, especially in times of turmoil. I think it can lead to peace internal peace and peace with neighbors. And um, the reason I bring it up is because I did a pilgrimage in Spain in 2018, the, the Camino de Santiago. And that experience of greeting people on a one-on-one basis led me to learn so much more about how we can create a peaceful environment, even if we can't change the world or you know, the society that we live in, we can change our interactions uh, one-on-one. And I really believe that's what these Quakers set out to do. They weren't changing American policy, obviously. But what they did create was a change from a very local, centralized base. And in a time right now where we're just, you know, experiencing so much heartache and anguish and on so many levels, 
sometimes the best we can do is create peace in our immediate surroundings. So I think whether it's um, a pilgrimage to a far distant place or just, you know, a walk around your neighborhood and waving to someone and, and kindness, that is how change can be brought about. I think that was what these Quakers set out to do, and I think we can all do that. We don't have to leave our country necessarily, but we can create change through kindness and love. That was director Robin Truesdale and producer Bill Adler, whose documentary Sweet Home Monteverdi came out in June 2020. You can learn more about the film online at sweethomemonteverdi.com, and we have a link to that website as well on our website, peacetalksradio.com. You can also hear a longer interview that Sarah Holtz conducted with Robin Truesdale and Bill Adler at our website. Just look for the October 2020 episode at peacetalksradio.com. And a little bit more from the Monteverdi Community Experiment in Costa Rica when we return when Peace Talks Radio continues after a short break. I'm Paul Ingalls. It's Peace Talks Radio, and we're online at peacetalksradio.com. With all of our episodes in the series on nonviolent conflict resolution and peacemaking dating back to 2002, you can also find most episodes as podcasts on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Today, Sarah Holtz just brought us an interview with the producer and director of a film called Sweet Home Monteverdi about a community of Alabama Quakers who in the early 1950s expatriated to Costa Rica to protest the increasing militarization of the United States. They founded a community there in a cloud forest in Costa Rica called Monteverdi. It included a Quaker school and a farming community that exists still today. Sarah Holtz talks now with Dario Villalobos, who's an educator in Shanghai, China, but he originally hails from that same cloud forest in Costa Rica. Though Dario is not a Quaker himself, his involvement with the Monteverdi Institute left a deep impression on his worldview. Dario spoke with Sarah Holtz online from Shanghai, and here he explains how the Quakers melded into the fabric of the Monteverdi community. The Quaker philosophy, of course, was a perfect match for, for Costa Rica. We, uh, at the point in history where, where they came down in the late 1950s, uh, Costa Rica could say proudly that we had more teachers than soldiers. And we, you know, we don't, we have no army. Uh, we, we grow up learning about, um, you know, when we abolished the army and why that was such a huge, uh, a huge endeavor for, for our government to, 
to redirect all these funds into education. So I take that standpoint of telling people like, yeah, I'm from this small country um, in the middle of, you know, Central America. A lot of the time, they don't even, people don't even know where Costa Rica is. They, they're like, oh, Puerto Rico? And I'm like, no, no, it's, it's a completely different place. Explaining that, that we're a very unique place in the world, uh, aside from many different countries in Central America who have standing armies and who have relied on their armies to, to maintain some sort of order within their borders. Um, for us, it's been a very different story. Uh, and that, that pacifism, I think, has been a, a huge part of, of our uh, growth as, as citizens of this country. And, and as well, the Quakers clearly chose our, our country as, as a place where they, they, they wanted to settle next um, because of this philosophy. Yeah, so growing up in Costa Rica, the abolition of Costa Rica's army, is that something that you learned about at a very early age? Yes, definitely. There's a, it, It's a big deal um, in, in school. You know, we, we have civics and social studies uh, classes that are, that are uh, required by, by the Ministry of Education. And throughout uh, different stages in, in our education, we, we learn, you know, about all the policies that went in place, all the different changes that had to go into uh, changing the law and changing uh, the way that uh, budgets were structured, you know, all the intricacies of, of abolishing an army and, and putting those resources to use elsewhere and keep keeping uh, a, a police force to, to have a, a authority, but, but not making it a militarized um, operation. And that's a, that's a big part of our education early on. Has it been strange for you to travel to other countries um, that are more militaristic? Oh, absolutely. I lived in, uh, I attended university in Minnesota in the U.S. Uh, and just the U.S. to me was was a very uh, interesting, interesting example of, of the complete opposite of where I grew up. Once I started to understand the, the vast amounts of money that are poured into into a military complex, it, it was just very uh, unbelievable to me i'm like why why would they need to spend that much money on 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 keeping up their their military it's been interesting to travel around see the world and and be able to compare my own upbringing in 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 a small country to to the big world powers i'm so curious you know you growing up around monteverde how did the quaker school incorporate into the region like was it a pretty harmonious relationship yeah, I would say, well, it's it's been such a cornerstone of what Monteverde is about because it's so old. You know, when the Quakers came to Monteverde, there were already a few families that had been established in Monteverde, but they were also um, one of the first to come up the mountain and and I mean, I'm sure I'm sure you've heard a, a little bit about about the feat that it was for these Quakers to come up the mountain. And there was no road, and they were driving all these cars and having to uh, pretty much make a road as they went all, all the way up the mountain. So this school is is so old and has been there for such a long time that uh, it it truly become uh, almost like part of the identity of Monteverde. So it's definitely a very harmonious relationship with the rest of the community their library is always open to anybody who wants to go and and use it and it's uh i believe the biggest english book collection in the country it is in their library at the monterey de france school and 
just the, the philosophy that they sh share with the community in terms of being inviting of anybody who wants to come to their uh, to their meeting services that you know happen in, in, in the weekends and just overall being people who who really adopted Monteverde as as their home and became became Ticos. We there's multiple multiple of them that I could say family members in in my family who were one of the first settlers of Monteverde became very close with a few of the older generation of Quakers and they would say that that they almost became more Tico than they were. The word Tico means like Costa Rican uh, because they've been there for so long and ad adopted even Costa Rican accents with their uh, you know, by by the time that they were there. So yeah, it's been it, it's really uh, a gem to to Monteverde, and and I I, I have memories of you know my my grandma uh, telling me stories of how sometimes they would trade back then, like a long time ago, they would just trade products. You know, like somebody would have some corn, and and they would have some coffee, and then they would meet and say like hey i give you this you, you give me this and, and it, it, it was truly uh, uh the community embracing these foreigners who they you know had no contact with in the past and i'm here with dario villalobos an educator from monteverde costa rica and I, i'm curious for for you personally have you been able to take the quaker philosophy with you like can you attend quaker meeting where you are or is it more of an informal influence on your life now Definitely informal. You know, I, I was, you know, I, I wouldn't call it my religion necessarily, but I share their philosophy inherently. Definitely, that's like it's it's part of how I feel. You know, I feel like if everyone was quicker, the world would be a better place. I truly believe that. Um, I the, the anti-war uh, philosophies that they share, and speaking from a place, or these people speaking from a place of action when they felt that something was not wrong they stood up against that and they left their country and that is that is such a brave and and just remarkable thing to do and i'm i definitely believe that that, that is something that i feel that i share a lot because just, you know in, in the times that we live of of such division in in our world just standing up for what you believe in and um making sure that that you are always questioning what, what it is that you believe in, what it is that you are doing in your life to, to make make this planet a little bit better. Um, I think I, I definitely took that away, not only from the Quakers, but just because of their influence in Monteverde. I really think that Monteverde became this example to the world of, of how uh, we can be different and make things better and protect nature. Um, you know the Quakers have such a huge, a huge influence in in conservation in in our already dwindling cloud forests. By uh, by the time they came, there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of farmland. Uh, there was a lot of forests being stripped down to to create all this farmland for um, for dairy farms. So and, and they they became a, a huge um, driving force towards uh, towards protecting these precious and rare forests. Uh, so that's just a, a small, uh, you know, an example, a pr pretty big example of, you know, how they've influenced Monteverde, and and I I take that to heart. That's so awesome. And uh, this is a really big question, but I'm curious. You know, it's a time of 
really intense polarization and all of these inequities are coming to light. When you've been having conversations with like friends or colleagues about everything that's been going on, are there ways in which that you've incorporated the things that you learned in Monteverde about conflict resolution and peacemaking and things like that? Mm. Well, definitely. I, I, I would say just listening is one of those big skills that I think I, I, I can truly attribute that to, to many of my you know, teachers and, and the Quaker influence of Monteverde as well. Just listening to, to people, you know, their feelings, their thoughts of, of, of what's going on and, and just trying to, to be present together and, and, and listen and, and truly, you know, not forget that it's, it's hard to, to solve it through conversation, but, but at least having, having that, that medium, having that open door to be able to voice these things, I think is crucial. Um, I mean, we, we're seeing so much anxiety and, you know, panic from so many people all around the place. Like even back home, uh, I was, I was reading the other day in the newspaper that the, the, the cases of, of mental health and, and Costa Rican hospitals have skyrocketed in the past few months because it is, a, it is very uncertain times. Um, and I think for me, that being an active listener, knowing how to ask people questions and, and just being able to have that skill has been very valuable to, to connect with people and to truly, truly listen and not make it about me all the time, but also just embracing my, the broader community um, around me, uh, for me here in Shanghai, especially, um, but also just my friends, my friends abroad as well. That was Dario Villalobos, a Monteverdian living in Shanghai, China. To hear more from Dario, you can check out the complete interview Sarah Holtz conducted with him at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also hear more from Robin Truesdale and Bill Adler, who worked together to produce the documentary Sweet Home Monteverdi. There's more from all of our guests online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also read a partial transcript of today's program. Find other websites and resources to check out. See pictures of our guests and either download or stream this program or our hour-long version of the show. Also at peacetalksradio.com, you can click on a donate button to help continue the work of Peace Talks Radio into the future. In addition to getting support from listeners like you, we also had help from KUNM at the University of New Mexico, the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund, and a Spinal Health and Movement Center, and chiropractor Ruben Ramirez in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Nola Daves-Moses is our executive director. Ali Alleman composed and performed our theme music. For correspondent Sarah Holtz and our whole team at Peace Talks Radio, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.